Wow, wasn't that great? Praise the Lord. Amen. That was outstanding. Would you join me? First uh, Corinthians chapter 15. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. A lot of bold claims in those songs, if you caught that. Lots of bold statements. What gives the right to stand and walk us through the journey that they did and uh, to try to make application to our life from those songs? And are those songs rooted in something? And I'll be honest with you, that what, what you just heard probably for the first time is what I heard for the first time as well. I had not heard that put together just that way. S- some of those were new to me, and so... What I want to do for the next little bit is for us to look into God's Word. We'll have several passages of Scripture. This will be the springboard, and we'll keep coming back to it um, to see why we can make such claims. And so I'm going to ask you, even now and throughout, ask the Lord to speak to you. It occurred to me this week, I, I naturally feel at a little bit of a disadvantage this morning of all weeks of the year, maybe Christmas as well. And here's why. You guys already know my message. You know it really well. Most of you know it really, really well. You may be sitting there saying, hey, Jeff, I know what you're going to preach on. I already know how it ends. Yeah, and I'm supposed to hold your attention. That's not, that's a fact that would be very intimidating if it were not for this. So recently in my personal reading in the morning, I've been going at the beginning of the year, we did some Genesis, jumped over to Job, came back to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, but here's the key for me that encourages me this morning. In the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy, so tomorrow morning I, fi- I finish the book of Deuteronomy, Lord willing, and one of the things that has struck me is how over and over and over and over and over and over, God keeps insisting that the Jewish nation of Israel remembers that you were slaves, Israel, and it was my power that brought you out of Egypt. I displayed my power, and what I did is the sign, the emblem, that everything I've ever told you, Israel, is true because I brought you out of Egypt. I flexed a little bit, and you saw my power. Don't ever forget it. And he actually set something up called the Passover, which is right here this time of the year. And the Jews will always remember that as long as they're on earth. They will remember the Passover. They will remember their slavery. They will remember the power of God. Literally, they are told, rehearse this. Rehearse it, rehearse it. And so you already know my message. The same truth applies. Christians, what they celebrate, we celebrate a greater version of the power of God in the resurrection of Christ that validates everything God's ever told us. So you say, I already know the message. Well, then rehearse it and rehearse it until it comes to the surface, until when you speak, it comes out regularly, the death and the resurrection of Christ. And so I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The whole chapter is about the resurrection. We're only going to look at the first eight verses. In fact, you'll see the fourth word. Now, I would remind. And so it's okay if we know the message to be reminded. Paul's going to say, I am reminding you, Corinthians. 
He did this actually back at chapter 1. So here's Paul. Started an actual church of believers, maybe like Graceview, actually more in house churches. He begins this church and he moves on. He stays with them a year and a half and he moves on. And he writes a letter back because they're having some issues. And he's going to begin his letter. I'm not going there, but chapter 1, he's going to focus on the cross of Christ. Chapter number 2, he begins by focusing on the cross of Christ. Then he addresses these issues. Then he pours in some other things, and now he's at the end of the book. Chapter 16 is the, next, is the last chapter. He's actually going to ask them to respond to the gospel by giving. But before he does it, he says, I'm going to remind you of what you heard me say so many times. Look at verse 1. Corinthians, now I would remind you. I, Paul, would remind you, you know me, brothers, means brothers and sisters. I'm reminding you of the gospel. If you're a believer and you know what that word means, the gospel means the, say it out loud, means the good news. Well, guys, the gospel, good news, it could be any kind of good news, but we're talking about the gospel. My daughter informed me that my... my title of my message today is a song by Mercy Me that came out apparently in the last year. I honestly didn't know that was the name of a song, but to me, if, if there's good news, and gospel means good news, this good news in these eight verses is, this is the best news ever. This is the best news. Verse 1, now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you. So he's looking back in time which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Hey, Corinthians, you didn't believe in vain, did you? You're still holding fast to your faith, right? I'm not there to see your reaction. So as whoever's reading this letter, I'm reminding them of the same gospel that I preached to you that you received. You really had real faith. You didn't have that vain, empty faith, did you? And here's the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance. Again, when you get time, go back and look at chapter 1, chapter 2. This is the most important message of the year. It's the gospel. I, del I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul says, I received it. I didn't invent it. I didn't make it up. I had to receive it. That Christ, here's the greatest news, the best news ever. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. I'm going to go ahead and warn you. I'm going to... Tuck that in as part of the first point, and I'm not going to get time to talk about the burial of Christ. It's its own message. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, watch this, in accordance with the Scriptures, and doesn't stop there. This is important. I kind of caught this this week. I've never really given as much importance to this. This is actually part of the gospel. It ties right in. It flows right through. And that he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive. 20 years later as Paul is writing about an event 20 years before. Most of them are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep, meaning they've died. 
Then he appeared to James. We're not sure which one. It is probably his half-brother, James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, Paul says, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul says, he died for our sins. It was according to the scriptures. He was buried according to the scriptures. He rose again according to the scriptures. And he showed himself to Peter and to the twelve, to five hundred, to James, to the apostles. Last of all, even to me as one untimely, as one that really wasn't even ready. I was like premature. Paul was saying, I wasn't even ready to meet him. But he invaded my world and I saw the risen Christ even later than any of the rest of them saw him. That's the good news. So today I want to preach four thoughts out of those eight verses. Just before I do, you've got to go back and catch the key points of verses 1 and 2. Every, hear me, every action, verse 1 and 2, is urgent to people's salvation. Everybody I'm looking at this morning, 200 plus, plus people, all of you, all of you have eternal souls. You will either spend it in eternal life, abundant life, or you will spend it, listen, in eternal death, eternal torments, always dying. Always dying, but never completely dying. Always experiencing the moment of death. Which is it going to be? It all depends on verses 1 and 2. You say, what are you talking about? Here's what happened. Paul says, I preached it to you. He, if he had not preached it to them, if they had never heard it. By the way, preaching does not have to be like this to a crowd. It could be one-on-one. It could literally be a letter. It could be a tract. Somebody has to speak truth to someone else. Why? Because we do not come into this world knowing truth. We're born blinded to truth. And because of our sin natures, guys, we go off into areas of belief that are the wrong, exact opposite. We have to unlearn wrong thinking when it comes to truth. This morning, sitting here this morning, and you may not even know it, you think you know a way to heaven, and there's people under the sound of my voice right now who have a wrong way of thinking. And you're going to stay in that unless you hear preaching it has to be told to us but the second thought he says and I, I remind you brothers of the gospel I preach to you Paul says I did my part which you received so once you hear the truth the ball is in your court you literally have to receive it you don't have to do anything you just have to believe what you hear it's being offered it was offered to them they responded and then Paul says in verse number two by which you're being saved, this gospel, because you received it, if you hold fast. This next thought is kind of important. That's why I included it in your handout. This holding fast is not this. Okay, I became a Christian in 1979, and I've been holding on to God ever since. That is not salvation. I am not holding on to God. What Paul is saying is, you hold fast your faith. Because if it's not a vain, empty kind of faith, then it lasts, it continues, it perseveres. Listen, if you ever come across someone, or maybe you're that person, you say, I used to be a Christian, I used to put my faith and trust in Christ, but now I'm not so sure. I'm checking out some other religions. You did not lose your salvation, you did not stop believing in Christ, you never did believe in Christ. This holding fast is not a condition of salvation. It's an evidence, a proof of those who really are saved. Because when a person has genuine faith in Christ, it perseveres and it lasts their entire life. It may, it may get almost snapped. Sometimes our faith gets really stretched because of life. You may be sitting there this morning. You're a real Christian and you're really down. You've been through a lot. And your faith is about to snap, but it will not snap because... 
you truly trust Christ. I forget the lyric in the song, what more could I ask? What more could I want than Christ, than Jesus? Four thoughts I find in verses 3 through 8, and that's what I want us to look at this morning. Real simple message, by the way. If you have an open Bible, you already know the points, at least 1 through 3, because they're right in the text. This is like the simplest of messages. Number one, what is this gospel? What is this best news ever? Number one, Christ died for our sins and was buried. Christ died for our sins and was buried. We heard lots of singing about it, and I'll tell you what I'm not going to do for time's sake. I'm not going to pause and have us turn over to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and go through and read all the verses that talk about the death of Christ and the way he died. I'm going to kind of assume a little bit that my audience, you're familiar. Jesus was a real man. He lived in Nazareth. He was a Jew. He presented himself to the Jewish nation as their Messiah, the Christ. The leadership of Israel rejected him. They paid a man to betray him. He surely did betray him. They arrested Jesus in the garden, did a mock trial, a fake trial with six phases. It had a Jewish phase. It had a Roman phase. He's moving them all around. They ultimately cannot pin anything on him because he is found innocent. And yet, the Jewish leaders pressure Pontius Pilate, the governor of Rome, to kill Jesus. Pilate does not want to kill Jesus, but he wants to keep the Jews happy. He surely doesn't want an uproar in Passover season. And so he actually has Jesus flogged, scourged, literally tormentors beating him within an inch of his life, hoping the Jews would take pity, but they do not take pity. They insist on crucifixion, and eventually he gives in to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know that he died. Hung on a cross from 9 a.m. until 3 p.m. Darkness from noon till 3 p.m. And then he dies. The Bible says he gives up the ghost. He chose the moment that he would die. Jesus literally died. So read that statement. Christ died. The next thought for our sins. And we didn't have room to put in there according to the scriptures. And yes, he was buried is the second thought. But notice Christ died. We call that, we celebrate that just the other day, what we call Good Friday. I want to impress upon your mind this. The significance of Good Friday is not that a man was crucified. The significance of Good Friday is who died? Who died? Why? The Romans crucified many, many, many people. Not thousands. Tens of thousands. You got to understand this. You say it was really bad. Someone was crucified that day. And that's what we're celebrating. No, we're not celebrating that someone was crucified. Do you realize on this day in this one town, this one city in the Roman Empire, three men were crucified. Three men crucified on this day. But the key is, it's the man in the middle. We know Jesus' cross was in the middle. The man in the middle is Jesus of Nazareth, a man, but he is the Christ, the very Son of God. He is God. That's the significance of Good Friday. So what is this phrase? I'm going to propose two thoughts. Verse number three, I delivered you first of all, of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. I want to put these two thoughts. Christ died for our sins. What does that mean? Our sins according, in accordance with the Scriptures. So if I ask you that, what does that mean, in accordance with the Scriptures? I want to propose two thoughts. Number one, I'm quite confident of this. When the Bible says Christ died in accordance to the Scriptures, I know that it means this. It was in accordance with the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. You've heard of it. Many of you have read about it. 
As you read about the sacrificial system, I need you to think about that because ultimately this, the whole sacrificial system was pointing forward, looking ahead to the death of Christ. It really started in Genesis chapter 3. Man sinned in the Garden of Eden and immediately God, God, watch this, God makes the rules. God killed animals so that their skins could be made to put clothing on mankind. Why? To cover our shame and our nakedness because of our sinfulness. God killed animals. I'm going to tell you guys, our sin has cost the animal world dearly many many millions upon millions of animals have died because mankind sinned where'd that come from god made a rule substitutionary sacrificial atonement god made a law that when man sinned certain kinds of animals that he calls clean animals could be killed and their blood be collect collected because the life of the flesh whether animal or man is in the blood so you're basically collecting the life of this animal Pouring it out as an offering to God to make up for mankind's sin. We sin, animal died for it, and their blood is poured out as an offering to God. But here's the thing. All of those animals were never washing away our sins. All they were doing is supplying a covering for our sin. Looking forward to the day when the true ultimate, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God would take away the sin of the world. Jesus came to take away the sin. Animal's blood was just covering, providing an appeasement, a little bit of an atonement, buying some time, looking forward to the death of Christ. I want to press this thought upon you. So I've been reading a lot in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Been in it for weeks and weeks and weeks. I read this over and over, and many of you have been in the same passages. I find that when we read, here's what we do. We read what kind of animal it is. Oh, it's a bull or a lamb or a ram or a goat. And we notice its gender and we notice its age and we notice its condition. And we notice how many is it calling for and how many days in a row. And we read this over and over and over. But here's what I want to ask you to do. Next time you read this, read it thoughtfully. Really picture. The other day I'm reading Deuteronomy chapter 21. An obscure one. Not one of the main ones. But the Bible talked about if someone commits murder. Now, the Jews were supposed to find out who committed the murder and take their life, life for life. You kill someone, your life will be taken from you. And the government was supposed to do this. And God had ways for them to find out. But if in the country a body is found and no one is around and there's no way to know who did it, here's what God deemed. He said, you will measure to the nearest city. And when it's deemed, this is the nearest city. The elders of that city were to take a heifer. This is a female cow. Here's the thing. It's an adult, basically an adult cow. It's a heifer because she's not had a calf yet. And the elders of the city that is the closest are supposed to go down to a valley where there's running water. I don't understand all the significance. I didn't study it out that far. But the elders would take a heifer and go down to the valley where water is running through and they were to break its neck. So we read that and we move on, right? Because we've got verses to cover. I've got to check off my reading. I've got to get to work. Got to start breakfast for the husband or got to fix your own breakfast or get the kids off to school. Got, got to check my read. So we read they're supposed to break its neck. But here's the problem. I'm reading this. I'm like, Lord, you don't say how they break its neck. A heifer. A cow. I've been to a couple of rodeos. I haven't been to one in many, many years. But I remember they don't do that. And they throw them down in their little necks. And they're very flexible. So I thought, how would you break a cow's neck? Maybe they took a sword or something and sawed 
And eventually as it dies and they just cut, maybe chop through, I don't know. What I assume they would do is take this cow and it would take many men to do this and rope it in such a way and probably take some kind of limb, some type of strong branch that would be long enough and attach it very tightly with ropes to this living cow's neck and so much so you guys hold it, you got it strapped down or putting in some contraption where it can't move and ultimately men would have to just turn and turn and turn and crank and that and you wouldn't want to be there is what I'm trying to say. This is cruel, this is violent, it's gross. We're watching Planet Earth the other day on TV and this little animal is being chased by this animal and Deanna and Eric have to turn away when this animal catches that one. Why? Because we hate to see animals die. I'm telling you, if you would read your Old Testament thoughtfully, you would read this and go, this is horrible. Do we know what the Levites and priests do? This is not like a glory position. They kill living, innocent animals. Why? Here's why. God is just. And he demands a payment for sin. He demands it. All these animals, it was cruel, it was violent, it was grotesque, but it was all pointing to the death of Christ. What I've got to get you to understand is Jesus' miracles, I'm going to preach on that next week, his miracles, his life, his words, but his mere words, none of those things would have saved us. Jesus had to die for our sin to appease the wrath of God. God demanded that sin must be paid for. And here's the kicker. What Jesus went through 2,000 years ago was far more cruel than the death of any animal in the Old Testament. Far worse. Verse number 3. Look at it again. That Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the Scriptures, the whole sacrificial system, looking forward to Jesus' death. But most of you know there's more to the story. It's not just the sacrificial system. That phrase, in accordance to the Scriptures, means prophecy. And this is where we could just stop and spend the remainder of our time talking about prophecy, but I don't want to do that, but I don't want to skip it. Would you go with me if you would? If you have your Bible, you're going to want to see this, and I'm just going to read it. We're not going to bog down. Isaiah chapter 53. I want to read two passages that are the main concentration of prophecies that were pointing forward to the death of Christ. Let's just read them today. Maybe it's been a while since you've looked at it. What does Paul mean when he says this is the good news, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures? The scripture was pointing forward to it. What you're about to read happened 700 years before Jesus died on a cross. I want to read all 12 verses, Isaiah 53. Here we go. Isaiah writes, and the Jews would read this and they were very confused. Is Isaiah writing about himself? Is Isaiah writing about the nation of Israel? Who is this lamb? Here's what Isaiah writes. Quote, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him, he, this person, grew up before the Lord like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He, this person, had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Whoever this is, when he comes, he's not going to be obvious. He's not going to have some majesty that everyone's going to run up to him and realize, oh, you're the one that we've been looking for. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows 
and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces. Men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. Carried our sorrows. Yet we, so as this is happening, we're getting an an insight of what people in that day would think. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. God's the one that's doing this. And ultimately, God was the one doing this. But they think God's doing this because he's bad. But Isaiah 700 years in advance realizes the truth. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But here's the truth. He was pierced for our transgressions. You need to take this personally. He, you could almost assert the word my when you hear these plural pronouns. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? Okay, so it's not the people. And it's my people, so it's not Isaiah. Who is this person? Verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Nothing. Yet it was the will of the Lord. This is amazing. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, The the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Watch this line. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. By knowing him, many, the servant of the Lord, will cause many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. So he's going to be numbered with transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So he's going to be numbered with the transgressors, yet he's innocent, and he's going to be pleading and praying for the transgressors. Leave Isaiah 53, go to Psalm 22. It's probably the second greatest collection. It's not the only ones. It's the only ones we'll have time to look at this morning. Psalm 22. This is a psalm of David. Though frankly it does not fit David's life. Isaiah 700 years before Christ. The book of Psalms here. This psalm 1,000 years. So this is even 300 years older. Watch what David writes in the book of Psalms. This is according to the scriptures. It's the sacrificial system. 
its specific prophecies. Verse 1. David writes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Skip down to verse number 6. David is, people think David's writing about himself. He's not writing about himself. He's prophesying under the inspiration of the Spirit. Verse number 6. But I am a worm, not a man. Scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. I thought about that. Is that what does that mean? Is it this? Or is it this? Oh, is it? I think it's both. They wag, literally. When did this happen to David? It didn't. This happens to Christ. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. Skipping ahead, verse number 14. This prophecy about Christ. I am poured out like water. Let this sink in. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have encompassed me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. When you die on a cross, you die naked. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Do you know there's over 300 prophecies of the Old Testament that the life and death of Christ fulfilled? Do you know there's like 27? I'm going to read them to you. 27 in just 24 hours. Like 27. I would have to look up a few more Psalms to support this in the book of Zechariah. Do you realize in Zechariah 11 and in Psalm 41, it tells about Judas. Nobody in here has named their child. Oh, i got a little boy. I think I'm going to call him Judas. You don't call him Judas. Nobody does that. Why? Because Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ for 30 pieces of silver. And then after he realized what they were going to do to the Lord Jesus Christ, apparently something in his head is like, that's not what I thought was going to happen. He comes back with the 30 pieces of silver, brings it back to the temple. He's going to try to give it back to the priest. But they're like, nope, can't take it back. We already got what we need. You just keep it. I don't want to keep it. This is blood money. Well, we can't put it back in the treasury. And so he cast it down in the temple. And he goes out and hangs himself because he's so filled with remorse. Apparently the branch on which he hung himself broke and he fell probably two or three hundred feet below. And his bowels burst asunder in a place called the field of a caldama, which is the field of the potter. And so they can't you put this money back in the treasury. They hear about what happens to the guy that betrayed the Lord Jesus. So they use the 30 pieces of silver to buy the land and he ends up getting buried there. You say, wow, that's an amazing prophecy that was fulfilled from Zechariah 11 and Psalm 41. No, listen to me, that was seven prophecies. Hear it again. He would be betrayed. This is in the Old Testament. You can go Zechariah 11, Psalm 41, if you doubt. Go read it. Seven prophecies. He would be betrayed by a friend for 30. Not 40, not 29, 
30 pieces of silver, not gold, not bronze, silver. And this would be cast, thrown down, not placed. Well, guys, I can't keep it. I'm going to lay it right here. Okay, we'll just set it right there. Well, no, cast in the house of the Lord. And it would be used to purchase a potter's field. Every detail. If any one of those do not happen, then he's not the right one. We need to look for another. But it happened exactly according to the Scripture. You said, Jeff, you got 27. Yeah, let me go through the others. He, you read some of these a while ago. We put them in a little chronological order. He would be silent before his accusers, false accusers. If I accused you today falsely, and you know it's a lie, you would not just sit there and say, I'll just take the punishment. I know I didn't. No, you'd defend yourself. He didn't. He would be rejected by his own people, the Jews. He would be mocked. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. He would be wounded and bruised. He would be smitten and spat upon. That's two. His garments would be parted. That's one. And cast lots for, gambled for. I want that. No, I want it. All right, let's cast lots. Aha, I get to keep it. His hands would be pierced. There's one. His feet would be pierced. There's one. You read it a while ago. His bones would be out of joint. This is describing crucifixion. They didn't do this in 1000 B.C., when David wrote it, they didn't use crucifixion in, in Israel. He, David is writing about something that doesn't even exist. His bones would be out of joint. He would see his own bones exposed. That either means that because of this position, he's going to see his rib cage and all of that, and it's going to protrude, or they're out of joint and they're sticking out, or because of the beating, literally the meat has been removed and Christ can look and see literally his bones. Predicted it. Crucified with thieves, that he would intercede for his tormentors. No one does that. That people would shake their heads, that he would cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His raging thirst, that he would be offered gall and vinegar to drink, that his bones would not be broken. That man's, that guy on the cross, his bones are broken. His bones are broken, but not Jesus, because Jesus was already dead. Don't have time to explain that. And then ultimately, we know that Jesus was buried in a rich man's grave. Here's the gospel. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That tells me this. God operates by a plan and I know it was God's plan for this to happen to Christ. And I know this. It is God's plan for you to be here where you're at right now. It is God's plan for you to be here. Number two. Christ was raised on the third day. He died. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. So guys, I want to make a point. Please understand, I'm not being blasphemous. Please don't take it that way. Go with me, 3 p.m. on Friday. That Friday. When Jesus died, he gave up the ghost, and eventually these other two men die. I want you to understand that his body on the cross... At that moment, because Christ, the, the Son of God, left that body, it is His body. It is His body, but He has pulled away from it. Separation has occurred. What is hanging on a cross is, guys, molecularly and cellularly no different than the other two men that are there. Now, somebody right now is probably getting a little bit of it. Jeff, are you trying to imply the, the body of the Lord Jesus is no different? What I'm saying is on a molecular level, there is no difference. The only difference between his body and their bodies that are now dead is that his never experienced any sin. Because the Christ, the Son of God, never sinned. But the body that is hanging on that cross, it is no different. Here's my point. He literally died. And they wrapped him up. 
I can't go over all how they wrap, but literally they would wrap them up and they would tuck in spices to kind of keep the stench down because they're anticipating after three days the body starts decomposing and it starts stinking. And so they stuff that all in and there he is in a tomb. What I want you to get is that he was just like the other two guys. Literally, he was dead. But at some point on Sunday morning before daylight, his eyes opened, and he came back to life. And I believe he literally moved through those clothing, leaving them behind. And the stone is rolled away. And those poor guards out there, I don't know what happened to them. I don't know if he put a Jedi whammy on them, but I'm almost imagining, see you later, boys, I'm out of here. He's gone. This is the gospel. I wish I knew who to give credit, and all I can say is someone. I'm sorry. I read this years ago, and I typed it, and I didn't put a name, and I apologize. But if you're keeping notes and want to write this, the greatest proof that Jesus is the Messiah is not his teaching. It is not his miracles. It's technically not even his death. Now, the death, we know, fulfilled all those prophecies. But the greatest proof of him being the Messiah is not those things. It's actually his resurrection. This is a key point. Do not forget this point. It is his resurrection. You say, Jeff, why would you say such a thing? Why would whoever gave this quote, why would they say such a thing? Listen to me. The apostles taught powerful godly messages. The apostles performed miracles, very powerful miracles. Much It was the Spirit of Christ in them, but they are used to carry out these miracles. So they teach like Christ. They perform miracles like Christ. They're even martyred. Now, I know I just went a different direction. Jesus is the cause. He's dying for the cause of, of Christianity. He's dying for the cause of salvation. They are dying for His cause. He is dying for salvation. They're dying for belief in their Savior. But they died a martyr's death. And so someone could look outside and say, well, he's not really that much different than them. They die similar deaths. They're powerful speakers and they do powerful works. But here's what they never did. They never predicted their resurrection and then followed through. Jesus does this over and over and over. I'm going to offer at least six times. At least six times Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. So on Sunday mornings here, we're in the book of Matthew. We're taking a break this week. Go with me if you would. We're going to come across it. I'm going to spend just Matthew for the next moment. Go to Matthew chapter 12. If you want to follow along, Matthew chapter 12. I want to show you how Christ... Over and over. So here's the difference between him and the apostles. They never predicted their death. Jesus did. Matthew chapter 12. Look if you would. And we're going to fly through these. We're not spending long. I'm just hitting them to show the point. Verse 38. Matthew 12 verse 38. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher. So these are the enemies of the Lord. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Would you do something? Prove. If you're really who you say you are, then prove it. We want to see a sign. He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. But no sign will be given to it. You understand? You're not going to get a sign. Okay, wait. Except the sign of the prophet Jonah. I'm going to give you guys one sign. And you need to get it when it happens. By the way, they don't. Verse number 40. Here's your sign. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That'll be your sign. I'm going to be three days, and then I'm coming out like Jonah did out of the well. That'll be your sign. You look for that. That's chapter 12. Flip over to chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, one verse. Just hitting it quickly. Matthew 16, verse number 21. 
So that we know this is time has moved forward in Matthew's account. We're moving to a second occurrence. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, watch this, and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, I know that as the disciples are listening, it's going right over their head. They think Jesus is the king. We're going to Jerusalem. We're going to set up shop. We get to be on his right and his left. We're going to be powerful people in the kingdom. This really is the Messiah. This is awesome. We're on the ground floor of something great. He's telling them he's going to die. They totally miss it. Chapter 17, look at verse number 9. Matthew chapter 17, verse number 9. And as they were coming down the mountain from the transfiguration, only three of them, he's with Matthew, Mark, I mean, sorry, he's with Peter, James, and John coming off of a mount of transfiguration. He's just altered his body, let these boys see a little bit of his glory. And as they're coming down the mountain, watch what happens. Jesus commanded them, hey, 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 Peter, James, John, tell no one the vision. Don't tell anybody what you saw. Until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Are we clear? And they probably went, yeah, all right. What's that mean? I don't know. What's he keep saying? He's going to die. Rise again. I don't know. Totally over their head. Later on in chapter number 17, look at verse number 22. And as they were gathering in Galilee, still not making his trip yet, he's, he's building to it. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered in the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Now it's starting to sink in, but it's totally confusing. Verse 23 again, They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Flip two more, chapter 20. Look at verse number 17. Chapter 20, this is the fifth time. And Jesus, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, that's the Romans, to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. One more is in Matthew chapter 26, toward the end of the book. Matthew 26, look at verse number 30. This is literally after the upper room. This is after the Last Supper, which you've heard of. What's going to happen? They're now in movement. Verse number 30, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out. So they've left the upper room. They've left the Last Supper. Judas is gone betraying the Lord. He and the eleven have now left. Verse 30, when they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, this is eerie to me. This is nighttime. This is the Thursday night if you hold to a Friday crucifixion. It's Wednesday night if you hold to a Thursday crucifixion. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Guys, you're all going to fall away because of me tonight. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Okay? You guys are all going to run and flee. You're all going to deny me. You're all going to leave me tonight. You're going you're gonna, to gonna hightail it. But when, you, when I come back to life, we're going to meet up in Galilee. Okay? Everybody clear. Verse 33, Peter answered him. Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Now, that wins, friends. Doesn't that? Oh, my Lord, now these guys, they may quit on you. I never will. What are you talking about, Peter? I'm just saying, I know you guys. I know me. Lord, I never will. And Jesus said to him, 
Truly, I tell you, this very night, you just use the word never, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me not once, not twice, you'll deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Me, me too. I will never. And we know they did. Listen to a quote from a man named Wilbur Smith. What we just read is six times Jesus keeps saying the same thing over and over. Smith offers the following quote. I love this quote. It makes me think. He says, it was this same Jesus, the Christ, who among many other remarkable things said and repeated something which proceeding from any other being would have condemned him at once as either a bloated egotist or a dangerously unbalanced person. He keeps saying something over and over. Here's what he writes. Smith says, That Jesus said he was going up to Jerusalem to die is not so remarkable, strange, but not so remarkable. Though all the details he gave about that death weeks and months before he died are together a prophetic phenomenon. But when he said that he himself would rise again from the dead the third day after he was crucified, he said something that only a fool would dare say if he expected longer the devotion of any disciples. What this man is saying, he said a lot of remarkable things, but when he said he's going to Jerusalem to be crucified and he'll come back again to life the third day, he say, anybody would say, Lord, these boys think you're the Messiah. I am. Well, then leave it that way. Why would you say this? That is so foolish to say this. Now let me read the rest of that quote. He says, when he said that he himself would rise again from the dead the third day after he was crucified, he said something only a fool would dare say if he expected longer the devotion of any disciples unless, unless he was sure he was going to rise. Why would you say it? Here's his answer. These guys think I'm the Messiah. They really believe it right now. But after I come back to life, because I called it in advance, they will know I am the Messiah. Nothing will ever take that knowledge away from them. I'm here to tell you guys, the, the message of the cross and the resurrection, the combination of that, just dominates the New Testament. I want to give an example. Go with me if you would. Acts chapter 2. Flip over to Acts chapter 2. Very important one. This is kind of symbolic a little bit of... The whole New Testament's preaching. Acts chapter number 2. This is the day of Pentecost. Peter and 119 other people are filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spill out of a room in Jerusalem. And they go out into the temple. And they're able to speak in languages they've never studied. The Bible refers to that as the gift of tongues. They're speaking in actual real languages. And they're preaching. And people are mocking, saying, they're full of new wine. This is not real languages, it's just gibberish. Oh, no, it's not. And these people over here are saying, I'm here and I'm speaking my language, and that one, and that one, and that one. And then Peter talks to the Jews. Let's read a sample of his message. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse number 22. Men of Israel. So here's a gospel message. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. You know that God used this man to do amazing things. And the people in the crowd would go, well, yeah, I saw him do it. Me too. And we remember the time? Yes, we remember that. He seemed like he was really the one. What happened? Peter tells them, this Jesus 
delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, predicted in Isaiah, predicted in the Psalms, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, watch what Peter does, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What Peter's saying, some of you here today are the very ones who just 50 days ago were shouting, 52 days ago, 53, you were shouting, crucify, crucify, that was you. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it, death. Verse 24 again. God, Peter says, you killed him. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And now David. So what does this mean in, in Corinthians when the Bible says that he was raised the third day according to the Scriptures? It's Psalm 16. Peter's preaching. You're about to read it. Peter's going to refer back to Psalm 16. He's going to say, now we know what Psalm 16 means. David, a thousand years ago, says concerning him, quote, watch this. We're getting an insight. Here's David, a thousand years earlier, is writing things. He doesn't even know what this means, but it's pointing to one of his future descendants, the true king of Israel. And we're going to get an insight. What was Jesus thinking as he's approaching the cross and as death is coming? What's in his thoughts? David says concerning him. This is Jesus. I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Aren't you scared to die? No. Not scared to die. My flesh will dwell in hope for you. Here's a conversation between God the Son with God the Father. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One, you're not going to let me see corruption. No Old Testament sacrifice was allowed to remain three days later when decomposition begins. Jesus knows. Father, the pangs of death have been loose. Hey, God, everybody listen to me. You're going to die. I've not been there in the actual moment when someone dies, but I've been there right before and right after, and I mean like right before. I want to tell you something. I've had good Christians, a man I think a lot of, he's gone home to be with the Lord now. He almost died, and I remember him talking to me about how it was frightening. A very famous preacher in Dallas, Texas got cancer a few years ago and shared how he cried and wept because it was scary. I've heard others talk about it. Death's coming. It's fearful. I'm going to tell you the pang of death. The fear of death is this. Where am I going? It, it is actually not like the moment of death is the most painful. No. It's this fear. Where am I going to be? Am I going to live somewhere? Am I going to cease to exist? It's coming. It's going to come to me one day. And I just hope in that moment, if it's not an accident that takes me out so quickly, if I'm on a deathbed and I have my right mind and I see death coming, boy, I really hope I remember this. And I die how my Lord died. He had great confidence. The pain of death is fear. That you're going to be separated from everything. That you're going to a horrible place. That you're never going to see anybody you love again. What's getting, it's, it's this. It's this unknown. Jesus didn't have the unknown. What he's saying is, Father, 
I'm doing this rejoicing with my tongue, my glory. I know that I'm getting ready to come back into your presence. I can trust you, Father. This is not some evil plan to get rid of me and to send me into the netherworld, into Hades, the place of the departed souls. You're not going to leave me there and you're not going to let my body decompose. I can trust you. I shall rest in hope. Verse 28. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. You know what, that's the end of it. You know what Peter does after that? Hey brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. Hey, here's Peter. A thousand years later. Hey, I love Dave. Dave's great. Okay, he's, he's, our, great, he's our best king so far. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. You all understand that? Remember how we go by his little marker over there and we celebrate? Yeah, it's got something in there. Being therefore a prophet, because David's a real prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. We're witnesses, me and these 119 other people. I imagine some eye contact between Peter and a few of the Jewish leaders, the 71 leaders who demanded that Christ be crucified. You know what they were saying? You know the lie they were saying. They have an empty tomb. Jews from all over the world came in for Passover, and what they left talking about was the great healer. They killed him, yeah. Hey, honey, you're not going to believe this. How did it go this time? It was, it was so different. You know, the healer, oh, the Jesus, yeah, they killed him. Uh-uh. But here's the kicker. As we were leaving, the last word was his tomb is empty. How'd that happen? Well, the authorities are saying that his disciples stole the body while the Roman soldiers were asleep. Stole the body. Roman, I've never known Roman soldiers to sleep. Well, uh, that's the story. I picture Peter reading, speaking, preaching this sermon and some of the Sanhedrin standing there as this crowd's gathering because these people are speaking in other languages. And Peter uses this occasion to say, hey, people, they know, like you over there, you're part of them, I know you. You know that we know you're lying. God raised him. Listen, people, we've not stolen anything. God raised, they paid those, those soldiers to lie. And if they were there and they were asleep, how can you say what happened when you're asleep? That's not what happened. You lied. We know. You know you're lying. God raised him up. I love that no one shouted Peter down. You're lying. Nope. They just sat there. Please don't tell. Please stop. Number three. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He rose again the third day, again according to the Scriptures. But as I read 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 4, sorry, read, listen, verse 5. Here's the gospel. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and on to five hundred, and so forth from there. Third thought. Christ appeared to his disciples. I've never appreciated how important. I want you to just, just use your imagination just for a moment. Think with me. Christ died, he's buried. If he rises from the dead, like he did, but there is no rolled away tomb, he just decides, I'm going to leave the tomb. I came back to life, and he slips out and goes back to heaven, but no one ever sees him, then no one ever declares it. 
If no one ever declares that we don't know that Christ rose again from the dead, we never believe in Him. The last thing we know is this one that we thought was the Messiah died on a cross and was buried. But we wouldn't know He rose again. Do you understand how crucial it is that He reveals Himself to His disciples in such a way that they become convinced? I'm not, I'm not saying our salvation rides on that. What I am saying is our hearing of the way to salvation rides on the system that God set up. It is riding on His apostles being convinced so strongly that they will declare the story and even die for it. Go with me if you would. John chapter 16. Flip over there very quickly. John 16. John 16 verse number 20. This is literally just a couple of hours, maybe an hour before they're going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane and Judas is going to betray the Lord. John 16, look at verse number 20. Same night, again, Thursday night or Wednesday night, whichever model, whichever day of the week that your belief is that Christ died. Verse number 20. Jesus says to the 11, again, Judas is gone. This, again, I love this passage. Take it home and read it over and over. Picture it. Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, I like to add these little words like, fellas, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Guys, here's what's getting to happen. You're going to cry and weep, and the world's going to have a big party. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. I mean, you're going to be down, 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 and all of a sudden, you're going to have joy. What? What's happening? They have no clue what's getting ready to happen. And he gives an analogy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow. Believe me, it is tough. It's not easy giving birth to kids. Let me tell you about it. It's, it's not easy. It's sorrowful. It's a lot of pain. And every woman who's done that is thinking, won't you shut up? You know nothing. Hey, I was there the whole time. I went through the whole thing. So it's, it's, it's not easy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So Jesus is telling these guys, you got a rough three days coming. So also you have sorrow. Now, I mean, guys, it's coming. Just a few hours, you don't even know it. Your whole world is getting ready to be thrown. You're going to be so confused. But I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. Ever. Those were three confusing days for the disciples. I'm going to tell you why. Listen. Their theology did not allow for a dying Messiah. No clue. What is Isaiah 53? I don't know what that means. We kind of skip that. What's Psalm 22? I don't know. David had a bad day. What about these? Oh, I love those. Our king is coming and he's going to rule and reign and we're going we're to get this land and it's going to be peaceful and the curse will be lifted. It's going to be awesome. We love those passages. What about these? Uh, we don't really deal with those. We skip over those. They have in their theology, hear me, there is no allowance in their theology for a dying Messiah, much less for a resurrected Messiah. Do you guys believe in the resurrection of Messiah? What? No. 
He would have to die. Messiah's not dying. And then he dies. A man named Laney writes the following. I love this quote. So succinct. Hear it. Hear it. Get it. Jesus was crucified and buried. His followers were utterly dejected. A very short time afterwards, they were extremely elated and showed such reassurance as carried them by a sustained life of devotion through to a martyr's death. They're down, and then they get elated, and they stay that way all the way until they die for it. Here's what I've learned. I've learned this because I apply it to myself. I want you to hear me. People do not die for something unless they believe it strongly. They have to be convinced of it. I'm here to tell you, something convinced these 11 men. Add Matthias in, these 12 men, these 500 witnesses. Something convinced them that Jesus really was alive. And if you're sitting there saying, I guess it was the empty tomb. It wasn't the empty tomb. Peter and John ran to the empty tomb. John's a little younger, outran Peter. John stopped at the front out of respect. Peter blows right by him and goes inside and looks and it's empty. When he sees it's empty, John starts to believe. Peter's just skeptical. Where'd they put him? What's going on? Where's the Lord? The empty tomb did not make these guys believe. You say, what made them believe? The appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ made it crystal clear. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse number 3. Look at the screen. Sorry if I didn't give you time there. Can we put that up and then we'll go back to that note for those of you that I drive crazy when I move too quickly. Look at this. Go back to the Acts. Acts chapter 1. Look at this. Luke writes in Acts 1, He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs. The King James says, many infallible proofs. Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom. Look at it again. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Like what? Do y'all understand the word proofs there? I'm going to tell you what it means. It means the kind of evidences that if you were going to court, you would take these evidences. The strongest kind. You're saying you really saw Jesus. You're sure. It's not this. Oh, I saw him one time about 400 yards away. He went over the road and I, I know it was him and now I believe he's alive. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about he walked. I have no doubt that he left footprints and as he kicked a stone accidentally, they heard it wobble. We're talking about how he talked in a room like this so that everyone hears the exact same words. Not like, oh, I felt the Lord say to me. Well, I kind of thought he told me. No, we all heard the exact same thing. He eats in front of them. These are the strongest. Give me some bread. I can see you guys think it's not me. Give me some bread and he eats the bread. Give me some fish. Give me something to drink. He drinks it. Come over here. Put your hand right here. Put your hand right here. Touch me. Grab me. It's the strongest kinds of evidences that could be had. These boys are convinced. And it was urgent. There's that thought. But I really need to bump ahead to the next one. I don't know if it's on this screen. The disciples of the Lord who saw him maintain such enthusiasm for the rest of their life. Enthusiasm for Jesus. Why? Because they could never unsee him. They couldn't just act like it didn't happen. They saw him. They could never unsee Christ. His appearance to his disciples is crucial. Can I share with you quickly? It's a long quote. It's my new favorite one. I just found it this year. It's by a man named Charles Hodge. 
going to give you a moment to write that. I want you to, it's a long note, but I want to give it to you. I want you to think how important this is. Hodge writes the following. And it's a little technical. I'm going to try to read it with the emphasis on the right syllable so that it makes sense, okay? Here we go. Hodge writes, quote, here we go, hang with me. All human laws assume that the testimony of two witnesses, when uncontradicted, and especially when confirmed by collateral evidence, produces such conviction of the truth of the fact asserted as to justify even taking the life of a fellow creature. Do you understand? We'll put people to death if we can get two witnesses, no contradiction in their story, and the evidence backs it up. We'll take people's life for that. He continues. Confidence in such testimony is not founded on experience. In other words, we don't have to be there. But on the constitution of our nature. We are so constituted that we cannot refuse assent to the testimony of good men. It's very powerful. Law. We'll do, we'll, literally, we'll put people to jail. We'll put people in prison. Because of the testimony. But now he applies that, and he says, here's what has to happen. So I'm going to jump ahead. I'm splicing a little. Here's what he says. But it is necessary. He gives one. I'm jumping to number two, three, four. Here it comes. But it is necessary that adequate opportunity be afforded to the witnesses to ascertain its nature and to be satisfied of its verity. So you write it up. Is this what you're agreeing to? Let me read it. That's exactly what happened. And you as well. Absolutely. <laughs> Word perfect. Couldn't read it better. That is exactly what happened. Second thing he says is necessary. That the witnesses be of sound mind and discretion. I won't say who it is in case they ever hear this. But there's someone alive today that in my lifetime was probably the most honest person I've ever met. But they're mine now. They're in their 80s and not being mean. I don't know that I would say they're the most honest person now because they're not of sound mind. But if a witness says, yes, that's exactly what happened, we agree to the truth of it, and they're of sound mind and discretion. And then number three, here's the other qualification, they must be men of integrity. If these conditions be fulfilled, human testimony establishes the truth of a fact beyond reasonable doubt. Okay, got it. So, great. We'll apply that to the apostles. Hang on, time out. Here's more. And it builds. So, they agree this is the testimony, they're of sound mind, and they're honest. If, however, in addition to these grounds of confidence, the witnesses give their testimony at the expense of great personal sacrifice, it's going to cost them, or confirm it with their blood, you're going to die if you keep saying that. If, moreover, the occurrence of the fact in question had been predicted centuries before it came to pass. If it had produced effects not otherwise to be accounted for. Effects extending to all ages and nations. And if God confirms not only the testimony of the original witnesses to the fact, but also the truth of the doctrines of which that fact is the necessary basis. By the demonstration of His Spirit. 
then it is insanity and wickedness to doubt it. Hodge says all these considerations concur in proof of the resurrection of Christ and render it the best authenticated event in the history of the world. Jeff, do you believe they really did walk on the moon back in 1969? I do. Some of you may not. Jeff, what do you think so? That proof and that proof? No, my strongest proof is these guys have, have always stuck to their story. I'll tell you what would really seal the deal though, if they had to go to jail or if they had to be tortured for saying that they went to the moon, then I would really believe them. But if they started backing up, we're getting ready to kill you because you're saying this, and then they recant, then we would know. Well, those boys weren't very convinced. These guys died for it. Died for it. That's powerful. And so, my last point today is the fourth one. What does it all mean? What's the significance of the death and the resurrection of Christ? What's the significance? I'm going to fly through these because I'm aware of the time. But would you believe that this is not less important than anything I've said? It's not less important. Number one, what does this mean? It means God really does love you. That's what the death and resurrection of Christ means. God really does love you. I want to read Romans 3, three verses. Would you look at the screen? This is so key. The death and resurrection of Christ means God really loves you. And here's how you should hear that. God really loves me. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, there is so much sin represented right here as I'm looking at you and as you're looking at me. This room is so full of sin. Every one of us sin. God gave us ten commandments, not so that we would keep them and go to heaven. He gave us ten commandments to expose that we're sinners. I dare say, I know all of us have loved other things more than God. We may not have actually made an idol, but I'll about guarantee you, everybody in here, because our children are out, we have all taken the name of the Lord in vain. Whether you admitted it, whether you knew what you were doing, or did it out of ignorance, whether you did it out of rebellion. You say, well, I've never done that. You ever said, oh my Lord? You ever said, oh my God? Good Lord? Usually we even at some point in the life like I have done, you tack a couple of curse words on, on with it. If you've ever done it one time, you've broken the law of God. You are filled with sin. God hates sin. He more than hates sin. He cannot tolerate sin. God will not let sin into heaven. That's what you have to understand. Have you ever coveted, lusted for something? Have you ever had hatred in your heart? Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever lied? No, I've never lied. You just lied. Have you ever lied even a little you exaggerated or you made a mistake. I always say this. I'm going to be there at 1 o'clock and you don't get there until 1.20. You lied. God doesn't lie. No one gets to go to heaven by lying. We've all lied. God hates sin. Verse 24. That's some bad news. Verse 24. But we're justified. Declared righteous. How? By His grace. As a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption means a blood price has to be paid. A price to release us from this bondage to sin. What does that mean? Redemption in Christ. Verse 25. Christ, whom God, means God the Father, put forward. This, 
I'm going to tell you, this is key, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Why did God do it that way? This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins for a long time. I thought God hated sin. Well, how come He's letting sin keep going? You want to know the, the fact? Here's how I know God hates sin. God sent His Son, Jesus, to die on a cross and God poured out His wrath. The word propitiation means Jesus put, took all our sin. He was set forth. And it wasn't just mankind doing outwardly physical things to God. The worst part of the cross was what God the Father was doing, judging and punishing and forsaking Jesus Christ on the cross. He had the weight of the world and God was hating His own Son. Why would He do that? On the cross, what we see is the holiness and the justice of God encountering the love of God. And God says, I hate sin. I will not tolerate sin. I will punish your sin. Those animals won't cut it. I'm sending my own son, and I will punish him. And then God shows that I accept his death in your place. I'm going to prove it by raising him from the dead. One more passage. If you're in Romans 3, flip over to Romans 8. Here's the second thought. What's the significance? Not only does God love us, it means that Jesus' resurrection guarantees ours. Now this note is only for Christians. If you're not a Christian, this is not for you yet. Romans 8. Look at verse 10. But if, we could say since, Christian, read this to yourself internalize it if Christ is in you although the body is dead you're still going to die although the body is dead because of sin the spirit is life because of righteousness if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you hey guys say Jeff boy you got a lot out of 1 Corinthians 15 you know I've not really touched it, nor have I hit the main point. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about, here's the main point. Maybe one day we'll, we'll teach the whole passage. The Corinthians were not doubting Jesus' resurrection. They had some false teachers that were preaching to people that we human beings were not being resurrected. The Greeks are trying to tell everybody, why would you want your body through eternity? You want to get rid of that body and your soul and spirit go somewhere. Paul says, don't you know that Jesus' resurrection guarantees your resurrection? Is it going to be the same old nasty body? No. He's resurrecting you to a glorified new body. It's connected. Our resurrection is connected to the Lord's resurrection. So Jeff, boil it down. What does it mean? Listen. Death's coming. It's coming. For you. But Jesus is death's master. Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus came and died so that he could take death to defeat death. Death means separation. Watch this. Because Jesus is death's master, then death never gets the last word on this guy or any Christian here. Death threatens you. I'm going to separate you. I'm going to separate you from everybody you love. I'm going to separate you from everything that you hold dear and from all joy. And Jesus comes along and says, Whoa, time out. I'm your master. Death, you don't threaten my people because you can't keep your threats. In fact, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do, death. The only thing you're going to separate them from is an old, worn-out, nasty version of those bodies that love sin. I'm going to separate. You're going to separate them from that. You're actually going to take them to God. So there's no separating. There's going to. I'm going to use you to do the best thing ever. What? 
death's the best day of your life. That's when you actually go to be with God. Why? Because Jesus' resurrection proves it. Third thought. This one's the shortest. Shouldn't have said that because you'll say, oh, the fourth one's longer than the third one. But But this is so serious. As I look at this passage, here's what I learned. Please hear this. God is serious about punishing sin. That's what I learned. Jeff, what what does Good Friday and Easter teach you? It teaches me God is serious about punishing sin. Where do you get that? Please hear this. Think if God hates sin so much that when He sent His own Son, His Son, one with Him, if when He sent Him and He became our sin, you think that God the Father would say, okay, well, I was going to do it, but you're my Son. I'm going to call it off. Thank you. You stood in their place. That's good enough. He doesn't. God says, if you're going to take their sin, you're going to get everything I have stored up. God poured out His wrath on His own Son. Here's my thought. I can't re-preach the first point, but you need to go home. If you've never put your faith in Christ, you've got to think. If God would do that to His Son, what would He do to me if I make a mockery of His Son's death on the cross and I refuse Him as my Savior? What will He do to me? I'll tell you the answer. He will allow you to spend eternity in torments and suffering. And I'm not making it up. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm being real with you today. You will spend eternity. You say, I don't think God will. If you have the audacity to say, God, I know you sent Him to pay for my sins so that He's the way to heaven, I'll just take my chances. I'm going to do it my way. You're going to hell. If you take this attitude, I understand you sent him. I heard the message today. Jeff preached it. It's in the Bible. It's pretty clear. They sang about it. But it's my life. And I want to keep my little life. You're going to hell for eternity. You will never get another chance. God is serious about punishing sin. But number four, this is the main thought. One thing I learned from the death and the resurrection of Christ is why don't you take away today? teaches me that everything that Jesus ever said is true. Everything Jesus ever said is true. Here's my thought. You didn't see it, nor did I, but I'm going to tell you, if I saw a man who every time he ever told crippled people, walk. Every time, they walk. And every time he told blind people, see and they see and every single time he tells deaf people they don't even hear him say it every time he tells deaf people hear and suddenly they start hearing and yes every every time i mean guys i don't know how many are over at mcdougald or sullivan king today combined jesus raised at least seven people from the dead maybe that's about how many they have you understand, if I were over there and Jesus came in and he starts telling dead people, four days dead people, bodies decomposed, live, 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 blind, see, cripple, get up and walk, deaf, hear, and it happens every single time? And that same man says he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to be crucified, and he's coming back three days later, and he does it? I'm believing everything that man says. That's the most truthful person's ever been. So that, this is where we conclude. What did he say? John 3, 3. Everything he ever said is true. John 3, 3. 
Look at it. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, everything, this is true. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So here's what I know. If you've never been born again, then you will not see the kingdom of God. So my question, when were you born again? Answer that in your head. When were you born again? 1979, right here. When were you born again? I don't know. You cannot see the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus says. He's honest. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus promised everything He ever says is true. John chapter 14, verse number 6. Jesus says, I am the way. And the truth. Can we have that on the screen, please? John chapter 14, verse number 6. Is that in there? Yes. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way. I am the truth and the life. Please hear this. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you're here today and you say, I think I know another way to go to heaven, then you're calling Jesus a liar. He says, there's no other way but me. John chapter 5, verse number 24. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Whoever, you have to hear my word and you have to believe him who sent me, you have eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. John 6, 37. Look at just the second part of the verse. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus can't lie. He's honest. He, everything he says is true. The last one, the last one, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Guys, just look at it, so simple, whoever believes in me, though he die, you still die, yet shall he live. Whoever believes in me, we're complicated, just look at just that screen. If you'll hear my word and believe him who sent me, you'll have eternal life. If the second part of the middle verse, if you come to me, I'll never cast you out. Not one person has ever asked the Lord Jesus, would you save me? No, I'm not saving you. He always says yes. And he never takes it back. You sin really bad. I'm taking back your eternal life. No, it's called eternal life. John eleven twenty five. one more time. I am the resurrection and the life. Here it is. Whoever believes in me, this isn't me talking. This is the Lord Jesus. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Would you close your eyes just for a moment? Just for a moment. So today, I know I went really long. I understand. But today, not as good as Paul to the Corinthians, but I promise you, when I stand before the Lord one day, He'll not rebuke me for not telling this congregation how to go to heaven. I know I've told the truth, and I know it's backed up by Scripture, and it validated the songs we sang earlier. Do you hear Jesus? It's not hard. Man, we make it hard. If you just caught some of those verses, I'm going to give you the gist of it. What Jesus just said is, if you'll trust me, if you'll believe my words, if you'll ask me to save you, you'll never die an eternal death. You'll die a physical death, but you're going to live again. You'll actually be taken to God. 
What he's saying is, if you do not do that, then you are already on your way to a real literal hell. And I know that's not a popular message, but it's the truth. We don't get to pick and choose which portions of the Bible to believe in and then do away with the others and say they're just figurative language. I'm telling you the truth. What's kind of hard to do, don't you have to be smart? No, I was nine years old. I'm telling you, I was such a knucklehead. I knew nothing. I knew nothing. But in June of 1979, I was born again. I was born physically in 1970, 1979. I was born again spiritually. How? I heard a message like this. And it was just real simple. A little kid had a conversation with God. Jesus says, if you'll believe him who sent him, God the Father says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, which means the Lord Jesus, every one of them will be saved. If you'll believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. So I've got to ask you, I'm getting ready to pray. I'm not going to have anyone raise their hand. I'm not going to have anyone come forward. You've got to listen. What I am going to ask you is, if I had you raise your hand, if you were 100% sure that you're going to heaven, could you raise your hand? I'm not having you raise your hand, but if I said you're 100% sure, could you raise your hand? I know for sure. I have a Bible reason. If there's anything in you says, well, no, I'm like 50% sure or 80% sure or 20% sure or I'm totally sure I'm not going to heaven, then what are you waiting on? So here's my last question. Do you believe God loves you and that the Lord Jesus Christ will save you if you ask Him? I know the answer to that. Paul preached it. The Corinthians received it. You literally do not have to move your vocal cords. You do not have to move your body. All you have to do is hear the message today. Jesus died for your sins, was buried, rose again, and revealed himself. Then his followers announced it. And what it means is God really loves you. His resurrection secures yours. God will punish all sin. Jesus has already paid for it. Why would you pay for your own sin through eternity? Don't. Take Jesus' offer. Believe Him. Right now, right where you're at, right now, do this. Talk to God. God, confess your sins. God, I'm a sinner. I am a sinner. I've broken those commandments. And God, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry for my sin. But God, I believe John 3.16. And I believe your son. And I believe his death. And I'm just going to receive your forgiveness right now. I'm, I believe it. I'm taking it right now. My soul and spirit is taking you at your word. You can't lie. And so I trust you at this moment. Will you save me from my sins? Ask him. Do it. Father. Thank you for truth. Lord, would you somehow, someway, do a miracle? Would you overcome the length of this message and penetrate hearts with truth? Not just this morning, but any future person who may ever watch this. And Lord, just use your word to create faith, the kind of faith that trusts Jesus and calls out on the Lord. And they receive that one-time, born-again salvation. Lord, I pray for Christians that we'd let your truth affect us, that we would hold fast to our faith, 
that we would stir it, we would rehearse these truths and how they affect our lives. We will never taste spiritual, eternal death because of Christ. Thank you for our Savior. Lord, now, let us give and sing and worship in our spirit, celebrating your truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.